This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. An American candy store in 1900 looked very different than it does today. Candy was a special treat sold almost exclusively in candy stores. Customers didn't touch the merchandise. Store clerks did. It wasn't displayed on open racks, but glass jars behind the counter. Clerks put the candy into bags, one piece at a time. The varieties of candy included butterscotch, toffee, caramel, molasses, taffy, and hard candy made from boiled sugar. Milton Hershey knew the one thing that was missing. Chocolate. Chocolate was sold in Europe, and only a very few affluent Americans had ever tried it. Here's Greg Hengler with the sweet story of Milton Hershey. It's January, 1862. The skinny-as-a-rake four-year-old Milton Snavely Hershey peers out of the window of a shanty at a fresh coat of white powder, wearing every piece of warm clothing he owns. He marvels at how pretty the usually muddy oil town of Titusville, Pennsylvania looks, draped in snow. Milton's father, Henry, has moved his small family in September, 1860, from Derry Church, Pennsylvania, 250 miles northwest to a hut to make his fortune in America's first oil boom. Milton's mother, Fanny, refers to it as another one of his latest harebrained schemes. In the course of their marriage, Fanny will count 17 business attempts and 17 failures. Here's Hershey biographer, Michael D'Antonio. She followed Henry through a few of his adventures and a few of his failures, and then started to look around herself and say, I'm raising two children. I don't have a reliable husband. I'm not sure where I'm going to live or whether there's going to be food tomorrow. This has to change. Even though Milton is only a shy four-year-old, he is aware of the differences between his parents. His mother, Fanny, is a strict and intensely focused Mennonite from a well-to-do family who made their fortune selling produce and real estate. She works hard, cooking over a tiny gas flame and saving her pennies in a pocket under her apron. She tries to keep the shanty clean and stuffs old rags into cracks in the wall to keep out the cold. His charming father, on the other hand, is a dreamer. He doesn't seem to know where the next penny is coming from, but he always has a new get-rich-quick scheme that will get his family out of dire straits. He's always laughing, telling stories, and reading newspapers and books that give him his next big idea on how to make his first million. Fanny hates her husband reading books. She likes to see men working hard, plowing and planting, weeding, harvesting, all the activities her brothers and father carry out on their well-run Mennonite farm back in Dairy Church. After a year and a half in Titusville, the Hershey's are destitute and bordering on starvation. Fanny's brothers arrive in Titusville and take her and Milton back to the Mennonite community in southeast Pennsylvania. Milton's ancestors, who settled in Dairy Church, 
are descendants of Swiss families who came to America seeking religious freedom in the 1700s. The Mennonites are Christians with a rock-ribbed devotion to God and his injunction to gain a living by unending sweat of the brow. Here's the director of the Hershey Community Archives, Pamela Cassidy. In the Mennonite faith, wealth is a sign of God's grace and that you work hard because that's a way of showing devotion to God. And if you're financially successful, that's simply a gift from God. The Snavelys and the Hershey's trace their roots back to these early settlers. And while the Snavelys are still devout Mennonites, Milton's father, Henry, has strayed from the strict rules of the group. Henry was a dreamer. Though he never had much formal education, he, had, he was well-read, just had a great love of books, and always was looking at the new. Um, he had dozens of ideas, many of which came to pass, but Henry just didn't have the perseverance or the money or the connections to make them happen. In 1866, Henry will again move his family 45 miles southeast from their Mennonite community. Fanny hates it. Just one year later, with Henry away roaming, Milton's four-year-old sister Serena will die of scarlet fever. The more wrapped up Henry becomes in his latest venture, the longer he is gone leaving his half-starved family to take care of the farm. Fanny's content to be thought a widow with an orphan son. Milton passes his school days at a series of one-room schools. His mother approves of his vehement distaste for school and books, which she blames for ruining her husband. In 1870, Milton leaves school happily at 12 with only a fourth-grade education. So crippled in literacy, he will leave almost no written records. Having been freed from the burden of schooling, it's now time to get Milton a real job as a printer's apprentice. Milton hates it. Here's senior director at the Hershey Museum, Amy Bischoff. The story was that he did not get along very well with the man that he was apprenticed to, so he threw a straw hat into one of the printing presses to break it so that he could get fired. Milton's mother Fanny and his aunt Maddie know Milton is a smart boy. He just isn't made to be a scholar. They set out and find Milton a job as a candy maker's apprentice for four years at Royer's Ice Cream Parlor and Garden in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 30 miles southeast of Derry Church. 14-year-old Milton arrives with a small suitcase containing two spare changes of clothes, two towels, his Bible, and little else. He's expected to work 12 hours a day and more on Friday and Saturday nights. Milton is a natural. He's a hard worker just like his mother, but unlike his mother, his Aunt Maddie has a shrewd business sense. She immediately recognizes Milton's talent and begins planting the idea of him starting his own small business when his four-year apprenticeship is over. And we'll continue with this remarkable story, the story of Milton Hershey, after these commercial messages. This is Our American Story.
And we continue with the story of Milton Hershey. Oh my goodness. Sent off to be a candy maker apprentice at the age of 14. And it just goes to that point that we make often on the show. The college isn't for everyone. And learning a trade and a skill is. And oh my goodness. He became really good at what he did. Working and toiling away in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Let's return to the story of Milton Hershey. In early 1876... As America celebrates its 100th birthday, 18-year-old Milton receives a $150 loan from his no-nonsense Aunt Maddie and heads east to start his own candy business in an 8-by-10-foot space in Philadelphia, the second-largest city in the United States. He's quickly joined by his mother and his old family friend, Lebby Ledkicker. Sales are good at first. Milton makes great candy, but he's not a great businessman. After five years of backbreaking work and bailout after bailout from the Snavelys, Milton's father shows up unexpectedly. Henry's youthful optimism has something appealing about it, but it also finds the balance of Milton's bank account plummeting even farther. This time, the Snavely relatives are unwilling to bail him out. That it was not unusual for him to go into the work area and spend 15, 16 hours, go home, sleep for four or five hours, and then come back and start again a new day. And I think it was because it was something new and that was something that Milton Hershey really thrived on. He knew, unlike his father, that if he was going to succeed, he had to put every bit of energy that he had into the business. Milton's father moves on to his next business adventure, mining for silver in the Rockies, and invites his 24-year-old son to join him. With a failed candy business and a longing for his father's company and approval, Milton follows Henry West to Denver, Colorado, and finds steady work in a candy shop. On his first day at his new job, Milton discovers something odd. The candy shop owner does not add paraffin to his caramels. Paraffin wax, made from petroleum, is normally used to help set the caramel candies and make them chewy. The owner reveals that he uses fresh milk instead of paraffin. Not only does it have a better taste and texture, but it lasts months without spoiling, as opposed to the two to three day shelf life when paraffin is used. Here's the executive director of the Hershey Museum and Gardens, David Park Jr. Pretty tremendous impact on on Milton Hershey because in those days, of course, they were just you know shipping the the candies locally and and there wasn't need to to preserve them for any longer periods of time. After a year in Denver, Henry boards a train with Milton to greener grass in Chicago and then New Orleans, both dead ends. With the backing of his mother and Aunt Maddie again. He breaks from his father and starts a candy business in New York City at 742 6th Avenue near 42nd Street in 1883. In a few months, both his mother and Aunt Maddie join him in the venture, cooking, pulling, cutting, wrapping, and selling caramels, taffy, candied fruit, nuts, and fruitcake. Unfortunately, Milton has to close the store in 1886, the year before. Henry arrived and wanted his son to make cough drops. But Hershey Cough Drops, the potential shining star of Milton's confectionery lineup, were a flop. They were good enough lozenges, but New Yorkers already had a favorite brand that was cheaper to buy. 
Smith Brothers Cough Drops. Milton makes the long, painful train ride back to Lancaster to find the Snavelys have given up on him financially and won't even take him in. Here's the director of the Hershey Community Archives, Pam Whitenick. Um, his mother's family, who had been helping him with financial loans all these years, had reached the conclusion that he was just like his father, just chasing one pipe dream after another. Milton may be a dreamer, but he's also incredibly determined. He pays a visit to his old friend, Lebby Leadkicker, and explains his situation. Lebby sets up a cot, buys him dinner, and the next day, Lebby pays for all the candy equipment shipped from New York and covers the next three months of rent so he can set up his candy operation in Lancaster. Here again is Pamela Cassidy. Milton Hershey never, ever forgot that kind of kindness. And when he comes to, um, up to Hershey to build his new factory, Lebkecker is with him. And he has a place of importance within Mr. Hershey's inner circle. Milton decides that his candy business will not be about making a whole lot of things good, but making one thing exceptional. Soon, his mother and Aunt Maddie join the operation again. As the business grows, he needs more equipment. But after talking to three different loan officers at three different banks, Milton concludes that at 29, with no assets and two failed businesses behind him, he's not a good loan risk. Finally, the Lancaster National Bank agrees to give him the money with Aunt Maddie putting up her house to underwrite the loan. Milton, his mother, and Aunt Maddie work around the clock making caramels in the new facility. But as the 90-day loan period draws to a close, Milton realizes that his best efforts have not been good enough. With the loss of his aunt's house staring him in the face, Milton sets out to sell caramels from his pushcart when a man with a tweed suit and an English accent purchases three pennies worth of caramels. As it happens, this man, Andrew Deces, is a confectionery importer from London. He loves the candy, but is reluctant to make a deal because of their potential for spoiling. Milton guarantees that his caramels will stay fresh for months. Deces takes a big shipment on consignment. So he goes to the bank and he says, I can't pay this and I need even more money because I need to buy more ingredients. And the man who he was talking to was the cashier of this bank. His name was Brenneman. Um, he takes Brenneman back to his work area and it wasn't very impressive, but Brenneman was very, very impressed with Milton Hershey. I really believe in this man, so I'm going to put my own name to this loan. He does that and about five days before the loan, that second loan comes due, Milton Hershey receives payment from DCs, is able to pay off a loan, and from that point on, it's been a matter of about four years before he's one of Lancaster's most successful citizens. By 1893, Milton Hershey has two factories and is employing 1,500 people. Give them quality, Hershey says, that's the best advertising in the world. On May 1st, 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition opens in Chicago, commemorating the 400-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus sailing from Europe to the New World. The United States has several interesting new foods on display. Shredded wheat, Coca-Cola, Pillsbury flour, Lipton tea, 
juicy fruit chewing gum, and a convenient new way to eat a meal. It's called the hamburger. But what Milton Hershey sees will not only transform his life, but America itself. While he was there, he saw a demonstration of chocolate making machinery um, that was on display from Germany. Was fascinated by that. Machinery just fascinated Milton Hershey as well as the new and the untried, and he saw chocolate as that. Milton keeps returning to the chocolate exhibit several times a day and gets to know the creators of the chocolate factory. German chocolate is creamy, unlike the expensive, gritty American chocolate. On one visit, Milton turns to his cousin Frank and says, You mark my words, Frank. The caramel business is a fad. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. Here's former student turned president of the Hershey Industrial School, John Mack Eichley. Mr. Hershey was his own man and decided to do what he wanted to do, regardless of what his advisors might tell him. The more Hershey studies the numbers, the better he feels about his instincts. Just 10 years before the exposition, the U.S. imported 9 million pounds of cocoa beans, and now they are importing 24 million pounds. And what a story you're hearing, and my goodness, the amount of failure that Milton Hershey encountered, and yet he kept coming back, and finally, through determination, and thank goodness her family, the mother and Aunt Maddie, hanging in there with Milton, too. But what a visionary. Caramel is a fad. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. And he had the intuition to know that. There was no data analytics back then. And he committed everything to that vision. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. And my goodness, he was his own man. We will hear more about this remarkable man. And we tell so many of these stories that they're not teaching in schools anymore. From the Steinway family to Henry Ford, right up to Steve Jobs. These individuals making a difference in this country and changing the country for the better. Milton Hershey's story continues here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Milton Hershey. Let's return to Greg Hengler. The more Hershey studies the numbers, the better he feels about his instincts. Just 10 years before the exposition, the U.S. imported 9 million pounds of cocoa beans, and now they are importing 24 million pounds. Here again is Michael D'Antonio and the former CEO of Hershey Foods, Kenneth Wolfe. At the end of the fair, the operators of this chocolate factory in miniature could either ship the equipment back to Germany or sell it. Milton bought the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. In the early 1900s, chocolate was really a luxury item that was only affordable by the economic top of the, of the ladder in our country. 
And I think one of the keys to Milton Hershey's success was that in the back of his mind, he saw making good chocolate at an affordable price for the mass consumer, and he wanted his product distributed everywhere. I think he was the first of, uh, of his kind, uh, certainly in the confectionery industry. And in a sense, in a small sense, I think he was to uh, chocolate what Henry Ford was to automobiles. Then at 40 years of age, Hershey meets the beautiful, vivacious, and witty 24-year-old Irish Catholic, Catherine Sweeney, or as he calls her, Kitty. After a year of courtship, they're married in 1898 in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in New York. No one is there to witness the event. Just six months after their wedding, it is discovered that Kitty has an incurable disease affecting her nerves. As Milton searches the world for a cure, he also searches for a perfect chocolate recipe. Milton wants to make sweet milk chocolate like the Nestle Swiss Chocolate Company. One big problem, Nestle won't share their secret. What made Milton Hershey so successful was his creativeness, his ability to envision what could be. Um, he got that from his father. Henry was not a successful person, and when his father would fail, he would just say, well, that happened, let's move on, you know, it's not going to stop me. Milton Hershey got that from his father. Milton returns to his family in Derry Church, where he sets up a lab to work out a new chocolate formula. He uses it as a chocolate coating for caramels. He creates tins of Hershey's cocoa powder and 114 other chocolate treats. Business booms, and as a result, he needs bigger production space. But Hershey runs headlong into corrupt local politicians, asking for contributions or risk paying high taxes on any land he purchases. Here again is David Park. Yeah, Milton Hershey sold his Lancaster Caramel Company for a million dollars in 1900 to his biggest competitor. And uh, many people think that that's, that's quite a risk that he was taking. He decided just to go entirely into chocolate. Milton takes another big risk and builds his modern chocolate factory back in the pristine rolling hills of his Mennonite hometown in Derry Church, Pennsylvania. There are plenty of cows in the area to supply necessary milk, although he does replace the herd of Jersey cows with Holsteins after painstaking experiments reveal Holstein's milk make a better-tasting chocolate bar. Milton Hershey's real strength was in experimentation, the unknown. And he approached that not on a scientific basis, but on a hands-on basis by just trying things and seeing what happened. He didn't want to know whether it was possible. He wanted you to try it. And if you failed, well, that was fine. The trying was what was really important. He also envisions a town for all of his workers. He plans everything from the start so that it will be perfect. Before the factory makes one chocolate bar, Hershey lays out the streets. The first two are main streets, Cocoa and Chocolate Avenues, and he also lays out the parks of his town. He hires architects to design high-quality, one-of-a-kind homes and buildings with electricity, central heating, and indoor plumbing. Companies are created to build a bank, a zoo, 
and schools. Swimming pools, hotels, a sports arena, golf courses, theaters, department stores, libraries, churches, railway sidings, water mains, a post office, telephone, and sewage systems. Hershey even sets up a widespread system of trolley lines that will spoke out through the countryside to help workers get around town and travel to and from the factory. Mr. Hershey had a, a very strong vision of what he wanted, not only for his chocolate company, but for his workers and the kind of environment that he wanted to provide. And that was a very far-reaching view that he had, certainly um, uncommon in his day and age. Then he rebuilds the massive factory. Its giant smokestacks have his name in big letters. Hershey produces his chocolate on a moving assembly line one decade before Henry Ford. The plant soon sends the smell of chocolate floating through the valley. Each bar is wrapped in a dark maroon paper and the large silver letters read Hershey's. Hershey envisions a delicious milk chocolate candy bar all Americans can afford. They will be sold for five cents at every cinema, drugstore counter, and bowling alley in the country. For 60 years, until 1969, Hershey's chocolate bars will cost just five cents. Here again is Michael D'Antonio. You know, the original Hershey bar is pretty much what we find today in retail settings from gas stations to convenience stores to supermarkets. It's that familiar rectangle with the brown paper and the silvery white letters on it. It was a big success as soon as it was issued. By 1905, the factory is making 100,000 pounds of chocolate a day, and the following year, net sales reach $1 million. The house Milton builds is handsome and comfortable, but would easily fit into the reception foyer of some of the great homes of Newport and Long Island. It's called High Point, but its main feature is where he builds it. He chooses not only to stay within view and walking distance of the business that is his life, but of the people that are its heart and soul. He was one of the first to understand that a big manufacturing facility could be the beating heart of the economy of a local community. And once that community started to grow, people were drawn to it. Always working towards getting his parents back together, and despite the fact that they live on opposite ends of his house, Hershey is grateful that they are at least living under the same roof again. Fanny, with her plain clothing and Mennonite bonnet, does the housework and cooking while Henry enjoys himself. Asked what he is doing while shopping, he chirps happily, spending Milt's money. A contest is held with a $100 prize to name the town. And so, in 1906, Hershey becomes the official name in the U.S. Postal Records. And you've been hearing this story, the remarkable story of Milton Hershey. And my goodness, his vision for his company and his workers, a man ahead of his time, and that he was in the business of bringing chocolate to the masses at affordable prices, a product that had only been available to the rich before, 
made him the Henry Ford of sweets, no doubt. In fact, he beat Ford to the moving assembly line. And Henry Ford, of course, did the same thing. Cars were only available to the rich until Ford, through his ingenious use of that moving assembly line, drove the prices down while raising the prices of the average worker's wage. And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Milton Hershey's story, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, if you have a figure in history you want us to tell a story about, send it to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. Return to the story of Milton Hershey and what a story it is. And let's return to Greg Hengler for the rest of this story. Once Milton and his increasingly unwell kitty come to terms that they will never be able to have children of their own, they begin what will become the capstone of their lives. They open an orphanage, and the Hershey Industrial School for Boys is founded. The trust deed states that they will be fed wholesome food, clothed, partake in daily chores, and emphasizes learning through play and physical activity. But the greatest concern for Hershey is the boy's Christian education, which makes his choice of house parents, who will run the orphanage and school, paramount. Both are graduates of Barrysburg Lutheran Seminary. Here's Pamela Cassidy, Hershey executives Bruce McKinney, and William Dearden. I think this really ties into Milton Hershey's sorrows about his own childhood, about um, the time that his parents were separated and he feeling like an orphan. Um, He spent a lot of his childhood moving around quite a bit and he wanted to create a more stable environment for boys who were being raised similar to that he had been raised. He saw it developing while he was alive and he protected Uh, the future of it by the unique trust system that he set up. And to the extent that all of us who have come after him are able to do so, it is our clear objective to shepherd along, to protect and enhance the legacy that he established long ago. In the schools that I went to as a boy before coming to Hershey, uh, an orphan was someone that people pointed out and said, you know, he's different. When we came to Milton Hershey School, we were all orphans. So it became a non-problem. You could forget about that and get on with your life. And this gave us a confidence and a real feeling of assurance that if we use our talent, we could make something of ourselves. And Mr. Hershey never let us forget that. Done in secret, Hershey perpetuates the school in a trust with his entire personal fortune, an astonishing $60 million in stock. Here again is John Eichley. It's the only thing that lasts forever, the school and the trust. They could sell the chocolate company, they could sell the park, or anything else in Hershey, but the school and the trust company will always be here. Hershey explains, I am 66 years old. I have no heirs. So I decided to make the orphan boys of the United States my heirs. Certainly Milton Hershey School saved me. You were in awe of Mr. Hershey. 
He was a godfather figure that you looked up to. I think the crowning thing was uh, when he handed my diploma in 1941 and shook my hand. Today, the private boarding school with 2,000 needy boys and girls is renamed the Milton Hershey School. And with over $12 billion in assets, it is, per student, the wealthiest school in the world. With the success of the Hershey's Bar, in the summer of 1907, Milton creates a new product that will become even more famous, a small conical-shaped drop of chocolate hand-wrapped in foil and sold in a box. Hershey calls these chocolate drops sweethearts, though shortly after he renames them Hershey Kisses. Here's Pennsylvania reporter John Lucy. It was the perfect size, the perfect shape, the perfect wrapper. It was a hit right out of the box. In the spring of 1912, cutting short his trip abroad to Europe, probably because of Kitty's debilitating condition, Hershey cancels reservations he made on the most luxurious ship ever made, a fast, new, and unsinkable ocean liner. So, the Titanic goes down without the Hershey's. But, on March 25, 1915, Kitty's 40-year-old heart stops. An attending nurse says, Milton was like a madman. He took the death of his wife very badly. And from that point on, he really focuses his attention on his businesses and on the community. Hershey has his defeats. When Bill Wrigley's company begins putting their name on chocolate, Hershey retaliates with a Hershey's chewing gum. And since Wrigley owns the Chicago Cubs baseball team, Hershey tries to buy the Philadelphia Phillies to challenge Wrigley on both fields. The Phillies' purchase fails, and so does the gum. I never lost my temper, Hershey will say, but I did lose money on it. As the Great Depression brought American business to a whisper and breadlines multiply, Milton Hershey is determined that the troubles will not touch his paradise. Instead of firing, he will employ. Instead of retrenching, he will build. Mr. Hershey had a unique perspective during the time of the Depression. And in fact, uh, we are clearly the beneficiaries of a major building campaign that took place at a time when the rest of the country was having very, very severe economic and financial difficulties. Here's John Stover, whose great-grandfather worked at the Hershey plant during the Great Depression. Milton Hershey, I guess, the foreman, he's like, what's this steam shovel doing here? He's like, well, it takes the place of 40 men. And Milton Hershey's response was, well, get rid of the steam shovel and hire the 40 men. Hershey says, think about it. When these buildings are completed, they will create more jobs. The hotel will need cooks and waiters and maids. The school will need teachers. And the sports arena will need cleaners and groundskeepers and hot dog vendors. He was walking through the lobby one day and asked the general manager of Hotel Hershey how many room nights had been reserved the night before. And the manager reluctantly said, Mr. Hershey, 12 rooms. And he said, 12 rooms. Well, we've got uh, 150 here. Let's make certain those 12 people have a very unique experience. With his wife gone, Hershey gives his home to the country club and lives in just two rooms on the top floor. In 1938, 
Rice Krispies are added to the Hershey's bar, and the Crackle Chocolate Bar is added to the line of products that includes Mr. Good Bar and Hershey's Chocolate Syrup. During World War II, Hershey develops a 600-calorie bar for the American GIs. Through the course of the war, the military orders more than 1 billion bars from the Hershey Chocolate Corporation. The Air Force even names a B-26 bomber the city of Hershey. Here again is Michael D'Antonio. It was hard in 1940 to manufacture a chocolate bar that could go to the Arctic and go to the jungle, cross oceans, and still be edible. And it's amazing to think of how much it boosted morale for a soldier to be able to open his ration package and get a little bit of Hershey chocolate. On September 13th, 1945, Hershey celebrates his 88th birthday with 14 of his closest friends at the old Hershey homestead. They dine in the room where Milton and his father were both born. Exactly one month later, Milton Hershey comes down with pneumonia and his heart stops beating. Over 100 years later, Chocolate Town USA is still celebrating Milton Hershey's legacy Every September 13th, the town gathers in Chocolate Town Square Park to honor their founder's birthday. Greatest man ever lived, as far as I'm concerned. He's done so much for all of us. He could have just used it up for himself, but he decided to make a school and places for other people. Scarcely educated and contemptuous of book learning, Milton Snavely Hershey founded a world-class educational system. Though he seldom wrote or deeply read, he built a fabulous business empire. Today, where 80 million kisses and four and a half million Hershey bars are made daily, the Hershey Company earns over five and a half billion dollars a year in revenue. But the human, spiritual, and emotional riches that were the main wealth of this simple man still survive, as the legacy of Milton Hershey continues to sweeten the lives of Americans and chocolate lovers all over the world. Honoring America, the Philadelphia Orchestra Brass. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hingler. And what a remarkable life Milton Hershey's was. And by the way, this is the kind of story that should be told in every classroom in America, because kids love the candy. And connecting it to where it came from and how it happened connects them to free enterprise, to the story of free markets, to the story of American exceptionalism. This is one man's idea. It's his name on the bar. His name. These weren't modern branders who came up with a fake name. He just put his own name on the bar, sold it, and now it's a brand and everybody associates that name, well, of course, with kisses and bars. 80 million Kisses still made to this day, every day, and 4.5 million Hershey bars made daily as well, and 5.5 billion in revenue. And yet it's the human side of this man that's so interesting, and particularly his desire to help educate orphan kids and to take care of them, and all because of his experience as a young man. And by the way, scarcely educated, contemptuous of book learning, 
Milton Hershey founded a world-class educational establishment and one of the most richly endowed. What a remarkable story, the story of free enterprise, the story of one man changing the world and making it a better place, and the story of this town, Hershey, Pennsylvania, and where it came from. All of that here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston, and climbing its tower on April 5, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land, and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, Good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore, just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hull that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him, he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade by the trembling ladder steep and tall to the highest window in the wall where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight Flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead, in their night encampment on the hill, 
wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night, and the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides, and under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed, and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare, as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed, who at the bridge would be first to fall, who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball. You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, 
through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading, and what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day, gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861, still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we tell stories about all kinds of things on this show. And we read a piece recently in the Wall Street Journal by Masada Siegel titled The Blessings of Rejection. And so many of our stories center around things like redemption, rejection, love, and of course fear, risk-taking. And this thing, rejection, my goodness, it happens to all of us and how we deal with it. Well, it determines the outcome of our lives, at least so many of our writers believe so. And Masada joins us now. Tell us a little bit about how you got onto this topic and what was your first major rejection? Moreover, how did you deal with it? Well, you know what? I've always been taught to dream big. And I think it's better to try and to not succeed the first time than to never try at all. I I feel like you meet these grown-ups who just never went for what they really wanted in life. And and I, I just think that's sad. I think, you know, if someone tells you no, so what? So someone else will tell you yes. So what I did is I applied to several colleges, and my college counselor at the time said, you know, these are reaches. You're not probably going to get in. And I didn't want to hear that. He was right. I didn't get in to several of those schools. I got three rejection letters in one day, and it was so painful. And my dad just came home from work, and he sat me down. He's like, this is going to be okay. You're going to be fine. You're going to get into college. And he said, we need to celebrate. I looked at him like he was crazy. What do you mean celebrate? I was like, I'm never going to college. I'm never getting in anywhere, and I've worked so hard. Needless to say, he pops open a bottle of champagne, and he's like, we need to have a toast because you will get into college, and it will work out for you. That scene stuck in my head for the rest of my life. And regrettably, not enough kids have that experience. I think their parents internalize this, quote, failure, And then they get all dour, they pass that along to the kids, and they reinforce a very negative, a very negative attitude towards rejection. Talk about how your dad almost insulated you from that with this attitude. Well, what's really interesting is, I mean, I got really good grades in high school, really, really good grades. But the the lesson that I really learned from that experience was once I got that college acceptance letter, and I'll tell you, when I got the acceptance letter from the University of Southern California, it couldn't have been like a better day of my life. It was the most amazing day ever. And so but what I really learned was not only did I fit in perfectly at USC and it was the right school for me and it really worked out, I learned to never do anything else in my life to impress other people, to only do what I wanted to do. That's an interesting lesson because 
years later, I applied to Columbia University. A friend of mine that uh, I knew told me about there was a program, an international relations program, and he said, you know, why don't you apply to this? This would be perfect. This is what you're interested in. And this is after I had moved to New York. You know, he showed me the application. I said, hey, I thought about it. And two days later, it's like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go try. I'm going to, you know, ask him for the application just to see to who, who to call. Anyway, I get to his house, and he said, you know what? They accidentally sent me two applications here. Why don't you have the other one? And what was amazing was I applied to Columbia with no GREs, with a B-plus average, with a really strong essay, and a really I'd worked hard in communications and worked at the networks and taken risks along the way. And you know what? I got in. So when people sit there and say, oh, Ivy Leagues, this and that, like, I have no connections. My, none of my parents, none of my friends, none of my relatives went to Columbia, but I got in. So the lesson I learned from being rejected was follow your own path and do your own thing. So getting back, circling back to what you had asked about my dad, my dad has always been one of my major role models because he grew up and he didn't have parents, so he had to do everything on his own. And what I learned from him is I learned resilience, and I learned how important it is to really, you, if, when you don't have a choice to make it, you've you got to make it. You've got to make things happen. Yeah, and the, the term, what's next? Uh, your dad always liked to ask that. Talk about what's next. Uh, two important words. I, like a lot of other people, I tend to fuss, as my dad would say. I tend to get, you know, I, I get rejected, or I have in the past, and I, I get bummed out, because that's what normal people do at first. And then they say, eh, you know what? Got to keep focusing on the future. I mean, that's, you know, I think it's a powerful word, what's next. Because you know what? You can't change what just happened, most likely, but you can change the next move you make. And you can think either more positively, do it differently. You have options. And I think what people forget when they get rejected, that's just one person's opinion. That's not the whole world. No, the whole world didn't say to you, no, you're terrible. It's one person or one group. And you know what? Maybe it wasn't even the right fit. It's so true. And, you know, in, in this whole college-paying scandal, I'm one of the only people who feels sad for the kid because the parents buying their kid his way or her way into a school is the cruelest form of thing you can do to a kid. First of all, you're teaching them to cheat, and that doesn't help. And second, the kid's not going to face rejection and isn't going to know how to handle it because mom and dad aren't going to be able to buy their way out of everything for the kid. And I would add this, when I was in law school at the University of Virginia, there were a lot of legacy kids. And all the legacy kids were at the bottom of the class. Uh, it, it, I don't know what parents are thinking when they do these things, but they're certainly not helping their kids. And meanwhile, your dad, who couldn't buy you into anywhere, when he didn't get the news you wanted, he said, hey, let's have a party. Absolutely. You know, I, look, I absolutely agree with you about these kids. And what's really sad is that when mommy and daddy buy your way into someplace, they're basically telling the kid, I don't believe in you. It's bad enough that the rest of the world will reject you because that happens to every single person on the planet, no matter their background, their money, their this, their, it doesn't matter. But when your parents tell you, I don't believe in you, so I'm going to do something to get you into college because I don't believe you can do it by yourself, that's appalling. So, yeah, all these kids involved in the scandal, I also feel bad for them because their parents basically are saying, I don't believe in you. And when people believe in you, that's the biggest strength you can, you can get. I mean, my parents are 
so amazing. I, I don't know how they're so calm. I mean, I've literally done crazy things. I've backpacked across the world solo, and they've always had faith in me. They've always believed that I can make smart decisions, that I'm going to be fine. Look, I'll tell you another example. I was living in New York City during September 11th, and um, I remember two days after September 11th, I was working at CNN, and there was a bang on the door, and somebody said, there's a bomb in the building, get out. And I ran down 23 flights of stairs, and I was petrified. I thought, oh, my God, you know, I just watched one of the worst things I'd ever seen before, one of the most traumatic events in my life. And now, you know, there's, some, there's a bomb in this building. I remember I had my cell phone, and I called my mom. I said, Mom, I'm okay. And she's like, of course you're okay. America is strong. You're going to be fine. Now go back to work. I was like, what? <laughs> go back to work? I'm like, I don't know if I want to be in the building. She's like, everything is fine. Go back to work. And I'll tell you, the fact that during that time period, my parents were like, America is strong. America is going to get through this. The fact that they were such believers in this country and how it works and that everything was going to be okay was amazing because half the people I knew, their parents were like, get out of New York, you're going to die. And my <laughs> parents were like, everything is going to be fine. Don't worry. Yeah, lucky you is what I can say. There's a part in this piece where it says, recently a friend lost his job and your response was, congratulations. And he was astonished. Did you just congratulate me? But you had done for him what your dad had done for you. Absolutely. I mean, I look at setbacks as push forwards. My friend did not like his job, was not getting treated well. And so it was almost as if the universe was helping him by losing that job to go get a job that he really liked. And you know what? He did, and he made, I think, 30 40% more money with the next job. But he needed that push forward. He needed to be told, you need to leave. And you know what? It worked out. I really believe as hard as it is in that moment, and it is hard. When you get rejected, it does hurt. I mean, don't, don't think that everybody, at least I don't love it, but you've you got to believe that things are going to get better. They're not going to get worse. You're going to move forward. Something is going to pop up. But I think one of the keys is to be as positive as you can be. And it's hard because when you have a family and you have kids, you worry about things. But looking at the negative isn't going to help anyway, so you might as well be optimistic, right? It's so true. And I want to close with words from your column. That's how I've come to see rejection as a push forward, not back. It's a motivator. And when you finally achieve your goals, you might find yourself more grateful and understanding for having been on the other side. And such, such wise words, Masada. Thanks for sharing your stories of rejection and the blessing of rejection. Well, thank you for having me on your show today. And again, you've been listening to Masada Siegel, The Blessings of Rejection. And we'd love to hear your rejection story. We all have one. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And my goodness, if your parents listen carefully to how she talked about her father and mother, particularly her father popping open that champagne on what she thought was the worst day of her life. Not bad advice. Masada Siegel's story, her family's story, the blessings of rejection here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy, and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them, too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat, both an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him, from his cancer or pneumonia, or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago, where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone, with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A, an airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. 
He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few, but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU, Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there isn't a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I am a danger to my patient. There is now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable, at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, 
where cooperation trumps ego and pride. In an environment that encourages resident autonomy, asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor, working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner. And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fassbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on?' "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your Grandma Sylvia.' 
He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me, leaning his warm body against my arm. He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. Who will that be to me? He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago. Max shrugged and resumed his ball tossing. I already got a grandfather, he said, not unkindly. Lots of kids have two grandpas. I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather. Hmm, too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. What about them? he asked, pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners, but I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet, he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. Whoa! he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. 
All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind, like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling? he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, I notice I don't call you Mom. I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. 
When I say Betsy, I mean Mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner? And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 